Before we get into the Word, I want to take just a brief moment to pray. And I would invite you as I pray, that you pray for me, and that you pray for yourself, that the Lord would open your eyes and teach you. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law, O Lord. May the meditations of my heart and words of my lips be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at a parallel passage of the passage Pastor Leek preached a couple weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 12. There may be some repetition, but given the challenges of this last year, this passage provides for us enough distinct wisdom that I felt it was worthy of our consideration today. Two Sundays ago, March 7th, marked the one-year anniversary of the last time that our church gathered together as a full body. It has been one year since children have been in Sunday school, one year since children have been in Awana, one year since we've had Grief Share and other ministries on Wednesday nights, one year since you've filled the classrooms in the Growing Disciples Hour. It's been almost a year since most of you have met with your small group in person. It's been one year since we've had men eating together on Saturday mornings, which, by the way, that's changing this coming Saturday. Uh, We're going to be having breakfast, so men, if that's been keeping you back, we need to talk, but come. (laughs) It's been a full year since our women have fully gotten together in person for their Women of Hope, which I heard went very well yesterday. For some of you, it's been one year since you've been in the physical presence of another member of the church. For many, it's been one year since you've shaken someone's hand or given or received a hug. Over the last year, there have been thousands of conversations that have not taken place. The kind of short or long conversations that happen before and after class or before and after the service or Uh, in the midst of your small group meetings or many other times during life. For many, it's been a year since you've sat with someone to pray with them, to cry with them, to rejoice with them. It's been a complete year. As elders, we are concerned about the detrimental effects that this last year has had on the present and future health of our church On the one hand, we are extremely grateful to the Lord for how He has worked marvelously. He's blessed our church with more members. We've added in this last year 25 members to the church, and we just finished a membership class that had 22 people in it who are now being interviewed. The Lord has continued to sustain our finances. We continue to see new faces or rather sets of eyes every Sunday. Some of you have been able to continue to serve in your ministries faithfully. Some of you have had others in your homes for fellowship. Uh, Some of you, even though you're staying home, you're still interacting with and serving others in a variety of ways. There are many blessings we could highlight of the last year, but suffice it to say As Pastor Kirby preached a few weeks ago, the Lord continues to build His church, no doubt about that. But having said that, in the midst of great gratitude, there's still concerns to be had. Uh, To date, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40% of our membership has not returned in person. Uh, Because we don't keep attendance, that number might be off, but given the capacity and the number of people that have been coming, it's somewhere around there. 
we've had really throughout this whole time, even in our most restrictive moments, the full capacity to have 100% of our church together, and yet that has not happened. There's been a decrease in participation in growing disciples classes, uh, in men's ministry, in quarterly prayer meetings. I was encouraged, though, to hear that women, the women's uh, ministry has been able to, to sustain um, good participation. Amen. Now, of course, we know there are many reasons and motivations for each one of you who may not have returned. And we understand there are many considerations that we all have to make in determining the wisdom of when to return to corporate worship or other in-person activities. So please understand my purpose is not to guilt trip anyone or to judge or condemn anyone at all. Instead, what I hope to do today is to remind us all, including everyone who's here in person, what it means to be a member of the body of Jesus Christ. We all know there are legitimate reasons for not participating in corporate worship. If you're in the hospital, no one expects you to get up and take off all your tubes and show up to church. If uh, you're sick at home, please stay there. Uh, if you're traveling, no one expects you to arrange your travel so that you make sure you're here all every Sunday without fail. You know, there's many, many reasons that we understand there's uh, why you wouldn't come and participate. But again, there are concerns. The concern primarily is that after a year of what we initially thought would be a very temporary departure from the norm, perhaps our attitudes about the church and our involvement in it have ch shifted and changed. Perhaps we've developed a different view of the nature of corporate worship. There's the concern that we have changed our understanding of what it means to be a member of the church. Not just of our church, but of any church. A few years ago, there was a new type of church that came onto the scene of humanity that had never been seen before. These were online churches. These, church, these were churches where people from all over the world would watch services, participate in small groups, and engage with other believers in disparate places without ever seeing each other face to face. Now, one year ago, had most of us, if not all of us, heard of that concept, we would have rightly and soundly rejected that as a legitimate expression of church life. Online church is not a legitimate replacement for the, for the kind of body life that Scripture requires, we would have said. But I wonder if our attitudes have shifted. I wonder if we have forgotten the vast difference between watching a service online and being there in person. I wonder if we have forgotten the benefits of having children in classes where they're being taught uh, and being reinforced of the things you're teaching them by those who love Jesus. I wonder if we've become content with the extremely limited participation and interaction that we can have in group Zoom meetings. At this time last year, we were starting the Super Supper 6 ministry. Remember that? Where many of us were excited about getting to know other members of the church by, over the course of the year, visiting and fellowshipping and enjoying meals in each other's homes. At this time last year, uh, I was working with Larry and Sarah Irvine to start a new ministry called Hopeability, where we would minister to families and individuals who have various types of disability. Annette Morris and others were... Uh, looking forward to and starting to plan the, the second year VBS that was going to be much better, or at least just improving upon what the, the great thing they had done the year before for VBS. Our women leaders were starting to put together a fantastic women's conference for July. Uh, the Grace Advancement Atlantic, now called the Master's Fellowship, was planning their annual October conference. The outreach ministry was planning all kinds of things that were going to take place throughout the year where we would reach out to our community and do evangelism. This is just a sampling of the kinds of ministries that were starting to ramp up and be planned, but which never took place. The loss of these ministries and others cannot be measured simply by the, 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 those who didn't receive the benefit of those ministries. I would submit to you that using biblical criteria, 
the greater loss has been the lost opportunity of God's people to use their spiritual gifting to glorify God and serve the church and reach out to the lost. Or put it another way, for a year, many of us have been prevented from functioning as Christians according to God's design. We have been like an injured athlete who not only has to deal with the difficulty of the injury, but by virtue of the lost time and practice, uh, loses measure of skill and strength in their body. So my goal for today is to remind us of those things which we have believed and perhaps lost sight of in this last year. And my prayer is that as a result of this reminder, each one of us will consider afresh our engagement in the life of of the church. So if you're there in Romans 12, let's begin by reading verses 1 through 8, and then our text will be verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of it, of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if serving in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Well, there are four main passages in the Bible that deal with spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which of course addresses not only gifts like these, but also the miraculous gifts of tongues and prophecy and healing. There's Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, and of course our text. Now that repetition gives us some indication of how important it is for us to understand spiritual gifts and, and broader than that, our, our responsibility, our role in the body of, of the church. But what really screams out the importance of understanding what it means to be a Christian is the placement of this text right here in Romans chapter 12. Paul's letter to the church of Rome has been called his magnum opus the epitome of theological treatises. It's without a, a doubt the most dense theological and practical letter that Paul wrote. It's the stake in the 66 course meal of God's word. The first 11 chapters are a full and rich exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And from there, it's like Paul is pulled along like a magnet, just compelled to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what he does for 11 chapters. Really, what Paul does is he writes like a skilled gemologist who is describing every facet of the world's most beautiful diamond. He begins with the wrath of God. That's coming upon those who have turned their backs on God, who has revealed himself in creation. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 29 to 31 alone, he reveals 21 characteristics of sinful man that make it clear that if man deserves anything, it is the wrath of God. And then in chapter 2, he turns his attention to those who are self-righteous, those who abhor sinners and follow the law showing that they too will not escape the judgment of God. He writes, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
those who have the law are blessed because they've been given the oracles of God. But, but having and hearing the law does not benefit you if you don't obey it. It is a curse for you. We read in chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. You see, the law can't save you because you can't keep it perfectly. The law is there primarily to reveal your sinfulness to you and our need for someone outside of ourselves to give us the righteousness that we need so that the wrath of God is removed. So how does God's wrath get removed? How does one get that righteousness? How are we justified? It is by faith. In chapter 4, Paul recounts how Abraham is justified by faith and not by his obedience. Therefore, if you want to be right with God, we cannot do it by our good works, but rather simply by putting our faith in the promises of God. And specifically, chapters 4 and 5 tell us that we are to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were still sinners and gave his life. He, he was buried and he rose again. The first man we read brought man into death, brought death into the world, I should say. The second Adam, Christ, brings life to those who believe. The wonder of the gospel is that salvation is not based on what you do. It's based on what God has done in and through Christ. Christ lived the perfect righteous life we could not live. He died. He rose again, paying the penalty for sinners, and he imparts to us his righteousness when we believe. And then we learn in chapter 6 that saving faith and receiving life, excuse me, having faith and receiving life then frees one from the power of sin and enables us to obey God. Not to earn his favor, but because to do otherwise would be to wallow in death. Then in chapter 7, we're reminded that while we still live in this body, which is infected with the curse of sin, though we want to do what is right, we cannot be perfect. It's only when we see Jesus face to face that we will have complete separation from sin. But even when we sin, chapter 8 proclaims to us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though we live in this body of death, the Holy Spirit indwells us and imparts to us the life of God, which enables us to overcome sin and endure suffering. And then chapters 9 to 11 deal with the question of God's purposes for his people, Jews and Gentiles. The mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, are, are included in the people of God. But that doesn't mean that God's promises to national Israel are nullified. All Israel will be saved. But for now, they've been hardened until the full number of Gentiles has been saved. And then the Lord will save Israel. And God's promises will be fulfilled. So having considered all the facets of that diamond carefully, Paul concludes by exploding into an anthem of praise over this precious jewel. Look at it, chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that he might be paid back again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. After such an an exhilarating, God-exalting meditation of His glory on display. What is there left to say? Why didn't Paul just end it right there and we could all rejoice? What more is there to say? Well, here's what Paul says. I already read it. Look again at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All of the theology, all of the doctrine that's expounded in such glorious detail in chapters 1 through 11 has a mandate for your life and for my life. Namely, that you give your life as a sacrifice to God. That means that you die to yourself. You die to the selfish desires that have controlled you. You die to the, the American dream that you've worked so hard for. You die to the world system of priorities and rights and morals and goals and values. And you die in order to live, to truly live, to live a life of worship to God who rescued you, who redeemed you, who saved you and transformed you and forgave you and gave you this life. What does such, such a sacrificial, worshipful, transformed life look like in its practical details? Well, that's what we read about in chapters 12 to 16. But, but notice what comes first. The first thing that comes to Paul's mind under the inspiration of the Spirit on what it means to live a sacrificial, worshipful, transformed, and renewed life is the matter of how we are to relate to those, how we are to live in relationship with those who share in this life. If we want to know what God's will is for our life in light of what God has done for us, we need to understand the matter of life in the body of Christ so that we can live it out. So with God's help, that's what we want to do today by considering verses 3 through 8. This text breaks down into three parts. These are the three duties of every Christian when it comes to life in the body of Christ. Three duties of every Christian when it comes to life in the body of Christ. Here they are. First, have a right view of yourself. Have a right view of yourself. Second, have a right view of the church. Have a right view of the church. And third, in light of the first two, serve the church faithfully. Serve the church faithfully. Let's begin with the first. Have a right view of yourself. Look at your Bible where it says in verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. There's a bit of a play on words here, which the NASB mostly preserves. You can see the infinitive to think repeated three times, but really it should be four. The infinitive, which here is translated to have sound judgment, should be or could be translated to think soberly or to think reasonably. The clear emphasis obviously is on your thinking and particularly the way you think about yourself. There is both the warning, don't think more highly than you ought to think, and the command, think so as to have sound thinking. Why? Why is this so important? Well, very simply, because how you think about yourself will determine how you live. How you think about yourself will determine how you live. Negatively, pride, arrogance, anger, laziness, discouragement, any additional things you want to add there, or on the positive side, humility, meekness, gratitude, hard work, perseverance. All of these kinds of things are influenced by how you think about yourself in relationship to others. We know that in our culture, there's this sense that we need to have a high self-esteem. The culture says that many of the problems that people have is the result of a low self-esteem. And therefore, the remedy to our problems is positive thinking. You see that person in the mirror? You tell them what's true. You're good. You're beautiful. You deserve good things in life. You're somebody. You're successful. 
through positive thinking, they say we can raise our self-esteem and lower our problems. But that's not what God tells us to do. He says here, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. Picture in your mind a gauge where on the low end you have the low side indicated by yellow, and then you have the middle side, which is, has the background of white, and then the high side, which is indicated by red. We're not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think reasonably and appropriately, to have, as he says, sound judgment, which really means to think in moderation, to think seriously. What should moderate our thinking? What should guide how we stay within the bounds of of reasonable thinking? Well, he tells us, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Our attitude about ourselves should be consistent with the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. Notice, there's no warning here about thinking too lowly about ourselves. Why? Because that's just not our problem. Often what appears to be low self-esteem is actually pride. When a person says, I hate my life, what they actually mean is, I deserve better than what life has thrown at me. My rights and my hopes and my expectations aren't being fulfilled, and so I'm right to be angry about life. I love myself too much to not be upset at what's going on. No, we don't have a problem thinking too lowly of ourselves. Our problem is not thinking lowly enough. Our problem is thinking too highly of ourselves. Now, when it comes to the life in the body of Christ, there are really two ways that this pride manifests itself. It's not explicit in this text, but Paul describes these in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 12, which Pastor Lee talked about a couple of weeks ago. I'll just mention this briefly. The first and most obvious is overestimating your importance. Paul actually warned about this in chapter 11 of Romans with regard to Gentile pride. But the point is, don't think that God saved you because he needs you. This is the person who serves tirelessly, yes, out of joy and the desire to serve, but also because they kind of think, I'm the only one who can do things right around here. If you want it done right, do it yourself. And so they do it all themselves. They essentially believe that the success of ministry is entirely dependent on them. They have too high of an opinion about themselves. Well, anyone who thinks that the church is dependent on them would do well to remember that God has appointed their day to die. Paul refers to this kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. What he's saying here is that we tend to look at the most visible parts of the body as most important, the people up front, the the people leading, the people speaking. The reality is we are all important. No one ought to think that they are more important than others. Well, the second manifestation of pride in Christ's body is the one who determines, you know what? I don't need the body and the body doesn't need me. This is the self-sufficient person who determines that they don't need other parts of the body to be healthy. This is the person who doesn't feel like They don't feel the desperate need to be plugged into the life of the body. It's really a a subtle form of pride. It's the thinking that as long as I believe in Jesus, I'll be just fine. I don't need to establish relationships with people in the church. I don't need to let people into my life. I don't need to get involved in the lives of others. Jesus and I are quite sufficient on our own. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. What underlies this reasoning is this sense that if God wanted me to be an integral part of the body, he would have made me different. Or he would change the church somehow so that I would be more important. Therefore, because the church doesn't fit my expectations and desires of what 
life should look like, I'll unplug or possibly find a church that does meet my expectations or I'll just be fine on my own. You see those two expressions of pride? One is, I'm needed too much. And the other one says, the church doesn't need me and I don't need the church. On the one hand, or excuse me, one is a hand who doesn't think he needs feet because he can walk on his hands just fine. And the other is a foot who thinks he can get somewhere without the body. Well, with Paul, I would plead with you to check your own heart and ensure that you're not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think seriously about your role in the body. Number two, have a right view of the church. Have a right view of the church. Look at verses four and five. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. First, you must have a right view of yourself. Second, you must have a right view of the church. Well, I trust that this is not your view, but I think one of the most common views of the church in this modern day and age is that the church is where you go on Sundays to listen to mediocre musicians, to listen to someone talk and hope you feel better about yourself afterward. And we know that's a common view of the church because many churches can be explained this way. You have small number of people who are active and serving and consistent in their participation in the various ministries of the church. It's a priority for them. And then you have the much larger group of people who come and go. Some come every Sunday. Some come twice a year. But what joins them together is they come and they go. They really are spectators. They don't serve. They don't engage with others. They don't establish relationships. They just come and go. My friends, church is not a spectator sport. The right view of the church is to think of it like a body, as we see here. The body has many members. It has eyes and ears and hands and feet. It has ears and eyes and legs and fingers and toes. And, and that's just the outside parts. Every part of the body plays a unique and complex set of roles in serving the rest of the body. Think about this. In most of the things that we do, our body, multiple parts are involved. The whole body is involved. When we walk, our eyes are watching where we're going. Our hands are moving opposite to our feet for balance. Our ears are listening to, for potential dangers and other parts are involved. When we talk, we're, we're listening for feedback from the person we're talking to. We're using our facial muscles and our hands and even our, our posture to communicate the meaning of our words and our motivation and our interest in the person. Our whole body is a unified whole made up of many diverse parts that all work together. And so it is with the church. There are three aspects of the church here. One is that we are one body. You see that? We have many members in one body. This is unity. All who profess faith in Christ, believing the true gospel, are part of the one body of Christ. There is not a single person who is a believer in Christ, whom Christ has saved, who is outside the body. All are inside the body. There are no spare parts. When God saves you, he immediately grafts you into the vine. And while we can act as though we're disconnected, any attempt to disconnect ourselves will only result in our own harm and harm to the body. Secondly, we see that there are many members. This is diversity. Again, we have many members. Every member of the body of Christ is unique. We, we have 10 fingers, but they're all different. Diversity is not found in the body of Christ in the various roles and titles that exist. Diversity is found in the people who fill those tasks and roles. 
Every person who teaches Sunday school brings their own personality and strengths and weaknesses to that. Every musician and singer contributes uniquely to the overall sound. They all really accomplish a similar task, but then in their own unique and diverse ways. Every small group leader facilitates discussion around the Word of God, but they do it their own way with their own personality. We are all different. We're all unique. Our our education, our life experience, our background, our spiritual maturity, everything about us makes a unique instrument in the Redeemer's hand. So there is unity, there is diversity, and third, there is mutuality. Look again at verse 5. And so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The two lungs in our chest are mutual members. If one is weak and can't fulfill its function, the other one has to compensate and work overtime. Every wounded soldier learns right away that when you lose a limb or you lose some function, it affects the whole body in a variety of ways. By virtue of the fact that we're all members of the body of Christ, we are interconnected and everything that we do affects one another. What affects you affects me. When, when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. When one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. When there is a need, we all have that need. There is a depth to the unity of the body of Christ that exceeds every, and I mean every relationship in the human realm. All other human relationships can be broken and torn apart. Even the best relationships end at the moment of death. But But once God sets His love and mercy and grace on you, once He forgives you and redeems you and makes you His child, He puts you into the body of Christ and you are in the body of Christ and we are members each of each other for all eternity. Church is not a place where you attend because you like the music and you learn something from the teaching. It's, it's not a club where you join and attend whenever you have time and it's convenient. It, it's not an extracurricular activity that you participate in and increase and decrease your participation based on other things going on in your life. Church is the body of Christ and you are one of many members. And because of your God-ordained membership in the body of Christ, you have a duty, a responsibility to serve that body faithfully. That's point number three. Serve the body faithfully. Look again at verses six to eight. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now in the time we don't have left, because it's almost gone, there's no way we can walk through each of these gifts, but frankly, I don't think it's necessary. The, The point here is to understand two things. First, God has given to each one unique a unique measure of gifting by His grace. Therefore, second, serve the body with a proportion of your gift that you've been given. That's the point. Consider the first. God gives everyone a unique measure of gifting by His grace. Notice the text. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Beloved, God does not need us Paul said in Acts 17 that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God doesn't need us. He has angels that can serve Him, but He doesn't need anything. I mean, if He can speak and accomplish whatever He wants, He doesn't need any of us. So why would He choose us? Why would He give us a gift to serve? Especially since all of us are incompetent, insufficient, and weak. Well, it's because He wants to show His power through us. And so He gives to each one of us a different measure of His grace, which results in different levels and combinations of gifts. It would be enough for God to save us, wouldn't it? It would be enough to be rescued from hell and to spend eternity in the glorious presence of the Almighty. 
But to magnify His grace even further, God bestows gifts on us by which we can serve Him by serving the body of Christ. That's the first thing. God gives every believer a unique measure of gifting by His grace. Out of that comes our duty to use that gift to further His kingdom and accomplish His purposes. Like the slaves that Jesus talked about who were given uh, some of money by their master to invest while he was away. We are to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given to us. So what are those gifts? Well, when you take the four passages and the list of gifts that they each contain, we learn some things. We learn that every list is different. None of them contain all the, all the same gifts There's some overlap, but they put them in different order. They each include unique items. So think about that. In the wisdom of God, he didn't think it was necessary or important to give any one church all the list of gifts that were given. That would seem to indicate that he is not at all concerned that the people of the church strive to find their one unique particular gift and do that one thing all their life, like we might tend to do today. We're never told to find our spiritual gift. We don't have any indication of how to go about doing that. And so usually what we do tends to be misguided when we take those surveys and try and figure out what our gifts are. So think about this in the analogy of the body. What does what does a hand do? Well, a hand lifts food to the face. That's always good. A hand brushes teeth, it it pushes a lawnmower, it hammers nails, it greets others, it plays music, and on and on we could go. Some hands are particularly good at playing instruments, and others are good at sewing or woodworking. What's a mouth good for? Well, obviously it's good for eating, it's good for breathing, it's good for speaking, for blowing balloons, and a whole host of things. Some of you can even twist cherry things in your mouth, stems. Some mouths can produce beautiful sounds and singing and others have a great radio voice and on and on we could go. The point is each body part has a great variety of uses. And from person to person, there are strengths and weaknesses within the larger array of uses. But even those who are weak in one area still have the ability to do them to one degree or another. You might not be the person who is best suited to sing into a microphone. But when you join your voice to the congregational choir, it is a blessed sound for all of us to hear. So listen, you don't have a singular spiritual ability that God expects you to find and then just do that one thing. God has made you who you are, incorporating your background, your experiences, your education, all of who you are, and mixed into that are the abilities and interests you didn't have as an unbeliever that that came to you by the Holy Spirit upon salvation. I I know one pastor who was in his high school, college days, a total jock, couldn't care less about studying. And then God radically saved him, and he couldn't care less about sports, and he couldn't stop studying. Well, it may not be that dramatic for you, but the point is you are who you are by the grace of God. And you have the ability then to serve the body empowered by the Holy Spirit as an act of worship in unique ways. When you look at this list in verses 6 to 8, you can see these are not really skills like playing guitar or drawing or accounting skills. Rather, these are functions in the body. Bodily functions are things like eating, walking, talking, breathing, things like that. Functions in Christ's body are preaching, serving, teaching, counseling, praying, contributing resources, leadership, administration, mercy ministry, and on and on we could go. All of these things can happen in a variety of ways with a variety of skills. So how do you find what your gift is, what your function is? in the body is? Well, I would submit to you, it's somewhat like a baby learns to function in life. No baby is born walking, right? How do they learn to walk? How do they learn to talk? Well, by growth and development and practice and trial and error and training. 
The way to know your function in the body of Christ is simply to start functioning and let the Lord work through you. Go through training, go through classes, practice. Try one thing, then try another thing. One of my pastors, old pastors used to say, or he probably still says it, uh, don't think of these as spiritual gifts. Think of these as spiritual opportunities. In other words, don't focus on what your abilities are. Look out for what the needs are and meet those needs. Paul told Timothy, after years of ministry together, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Even after many years of ministry with Paul, Timothy had gifts that he needed to work on. Well, I would encourage you, after this last year, fan into flame your gift. Lord, the Lord has given you a measure of His grace, not for your benefit, but so that you would minister to the body of Christ. Well, as we close, the threat of death has never kept the church of Jesus Christ from meeting together and functioning as a body. Churches throughout the world and throughout history have always understood the importance of this, and so they've met in many cases in secret or in smaller numbers, but they still meet. I hope you've been watching the videos on persecution that Larry T.G. has been putting into the newsletter each week. It reminds us of what our brothers and sisters around the world go through and what they are threatened with when they get together. You know, the advent of the internet hasn't changed anything about the vital importance of meeting together in person and the vital importance of using our God-given gifts of grace for the benefit of one another. Beloved, Jesus didn't suffer and die and rise again so that we would preserve our lives for as long as possible. You won't find that command in Scripture. He died and rose again so that we would live for him, even if it costs us our lives. I know that's a bold statement. And probably maybe a year ago, we wouldn't have thought twice about it. But I wonder if that's changed. This is the call to discipleship. Pick up your cross, the implement of death, and follow me. On his way to Jerusalem, having some sense that his life was going to be threatened there, Paul said this in Acts 20, verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul wasn't sick, nor did he have to go to Jerusalem. In fact, other believers were trying to convince him not to go to Jerusalem because they were concerned about his life. But he knew what the Lord had called him to do, and he was committed to doing it, even if it led to his own death. In 1527, during a deadly plague, Martin Luther wrote a public letter in response to questions he had been receiving from a variety of pastors on whether or not it was appropriate for Christians to flee the city in light of this plague for the sake of safety. In the letter, Luther walked through a variety of reasons why it might be acceptable or unacceptable to leave town. But in the conclusion of that letter, he said this about those who chose to stay or were forced to stay because of their responsibilities. Quote, one must admonish the people to attend church and listen to the sermon so that they learn through God's word how to live and how to die. Unquote. This was a plague where bodies were being stacked, where they weren't sure, where do we bury all these people who are dying? We don't have space in our cemeteries. Luther didn't say, well, if you're going to stay, just do the minimum possible and stay at home. No, he said, no, come to church because you got to learn how to live and how to die. I don't intend for this to be controversial, but by God's grace, COVID-19 is not very deadly. Now, I didn't say it's not deadly. I said it's not very deadly relative to the deadly plagues and pandemics of the past where tens of millions of people died in short 
order. For most of us, the survival rate is over 99.5%. I know many of you have had the virus, and as, as far as I'm aware, only three of us in our church have had to go to the hospital. And we understand that's by God's grace. That's nothing that we have done. It's God's mercy on our church. But you know, in 2020, for every person who died due to COVID, nine people died of other causes. My point is we're surrounded by death. Death will come to us all. There is a point if a man wants to die and then face judgment. We can't extend the length of our life, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. We can't worry about our life or extend it by any measures that we take. The church exists to proclaim life to a dying world. Now, there are reasonable precautions we can take, we have taken, and will continue to take. But there is no reason we cannot function fully and freely as the body of Christ. Most of the functioning of the church body happens in informal and unofficial ways. You don't need a ministry. You don't need a ministry leader. You don't need a budget to serve and love one another the way Christ calls us to do. And it will always be that way. But in the coming weeks, you've already heard even earlier this morning of more and more opportunities to serve, uh, to come together for a specific task, to use the gifts, the time, the abilities, the resources that God has given you to serve the body of Christ as we endeavor to worship and disciple and evangelize. So be looking out for those spiritual opportunities, but don't wait for them. Think rightly about yourself, think rightly about the church, and serve the Lord faithfully with all of the opportunities the Lord provides, all of the needs that you see, which are either advertised or you just observe on your own. Take the opportunities that God gives and let us serve one another for the sake and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we um, are so grateful for this body that you have placed us in. This world is so full of death and destruction, of confusion, of lies. And were we left to ourselves, we would be lost in that confusion. We would be deceived by those lies. We would be easily pulled one direction and then the other, blown to and fro by the waves. But in your kindness, in your wisdom, you've placed us in a body to give us stability and strength and purpose. To give us people who can remind us of the truth when we're starting to waver. You've given us leaders who teach us. You've given us those that we can minister to. You've given us gifts and opportunities. It all comes from you. It's all through you and Lord, help us to make it all to you. That is to say, to do all that we do for the glory of Christ. That we would make it our aim in life and in death to please you. So that we would be a church that shines the gospel of Christ. That doesn't cower in fear, but that proclaims the resurrection of the Lord and the salvation that he offers. We ask these things in his name. Amen.